Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Moth. And I'm Paige Wallace. And today we are starting the first in our three-part series, Building Skills for the Literature Class. And our first skill, surprisingly, is close reading. Yeah, and I was actually thinking about this, like what do we mean when we say close reading? What are we reading for? What do we want our students to pay attention to? I have things in mind. I know you have things in mind. I don't know how similar or different they are, <laughs> but what, what do you have in mind when you well, talk about close reading? Yeah, I'm glad you started there. I mean, because I wanna talk about like the language we use when we introduce critical reading to our students. And so I was thinking about how I talk to students at the very beginning of the semester in every class about reading um, in a way to get them to see the difference between passive reading and reading for enjoyment or entertainment and engaged reading, right? Um, sort of like strategic reading. And so a lot of times I'll start this conversation with, you know, what what is your sort of ideal reading situation, right? Um, and they're, they're usually like, what is she talking about? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, do you have any like traditions when it comes to reading or relaxing or doing something that's about entertainment in the personal, like in your personal space, right? So like when you get ready to sit down and watch TV, do you pull out your chips and dip? Like, do you have a comfy blanket? The same goes with reading if you're a reader, right? Like I love to read outside in my hammock and it's a very passive, like I'm absorbing the text. And I'm like, that's not what I'm asking you to do at all. I don't <laughs> yeah, do that at all. those rituals, don't even yeah. think about reaching for that blanket. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because this kind of reading requires strategic reading. And so then what I'll do or, or being a sort of um, investigator of the text. And so I'll talk to them about my different process where I'm sitting down to read a text to analyze it, right? Like I'm usually at a desk or at a table and I have highlighters or post-its or pens, something that I can record and take notes with. And I want them to see like the very different sort of scenarios for passively absorbing a text and getting ready to like, untangle that text right Mm -hmm. and and untangle it and connect it or yeah connect it to other things yeah I I like that you you do that I I realize that I do that with my uh composition and writing students where we talk about um their rituals that gets them in the right space for this sort of work but I don't do that with my lit students and I might start adding that of what helps your brain prepared because that is part of the writing and part of the reading process and writing process are are tied together um I do like to show my students my own marginal notes for the books we're Mm -hmm. reading to show them that engaged reading um and response doesn't always mean you're writing really brilliant notes I show them that a lot of my marginal notes are just like exclamation marks or ha (laughs) like um because like this is what on your first read part of what you're doing is looking for what stands out or what you think is important that you're going to come back to later on subsequent reads. And maybe something we need to stress more is that engaged reading requires multiple reads. Yeah, I think so. Um, And 
I think that's something that we as instructors have to remind ourselves that when we assign reading, we're asking students to not just read those 30 or 40 pages once, but to at least sort of reskim more than one time, right? And, and that is a lot, that can be a lot of work for them. And what are some things you want your students to look for when they're, when they're reading? Do you encourage them to look for anything specific or give them any? I think it begins with, it, it depends on the text. Um, as to what I'm asking them to look for. So we've talked about like critical lenses before. So sometimes I'll ask them to employ critical lenses, um, but also usually, especially on a first read, um, I will ask students to make some sort of connection, right? Some sort of connection to something else they've read, something else they know about. I try to get them away from just like a personal connection mm -hmm. um, to what could be a conversation starter with this text that you see in the text that you don't think other people would immediately see, but because of your experiences, because of the knowledge that you have, you see it and you make that connection for us. And then we can talk about it. So I really like that phrase, the, what are the conversation starters of the text? That would be a really great small group prompt. Yeah, definitely. I was break, thinking, break them up into small groups and tell them like as the homework that when they're reading, they have to find at least one moment in that section that they think could be a conversation starter. And then in their small groups, for, like point to those moments and have a conversation. Yeah. And then you can kind of move towards larger class discussions. I use fishbowl a lot to make students uh, um, like have back and forth dialogue mm -hmm. uh, with reading. And so, and I do it where like, you can't leave the middle of the group. Um, so you can't leave those two talking chairs until someone um, taps you out from a, the outside circle. And the person tapping you out has to be able to respond to something that was like, uh, sort of like immediately said before with the person that's still in, in the circle. And so, I think maybe that's part of our conversation is that when they're passively absorbing it, um, they can tell you what happened with the text, but that doesn't start a conversation because we've all read that text. We all know what happened with it. Um, and so if you're, if you're doing that sort of strategic reading, that investigative reading, then you're starting a conversation with someone else that in class. Yeah, I like that. Um, I might use this to reframe the two approaches I currently use. Cause I think there's something there of like thinking of it as a water cooler moment, conversation starter. Um, and maybe talking to them about those water cooler moments where everyone watches the same show. And then the next day they come in and they talk about the show and they're not just recapping, right? They're saying, can you believe this character did that? Why do you think they would do that? Where is the show gonna go? Is it off the rails? Mm -hmm. um, but I have, of two sets of questions, one set of four, one set of two, I shake up which ones I'm using, depending on the class dynamics and all of that. If it's a class that is less confident in their reading skills, um, needs a little bit more handholding, then I give them the set of four, which are pretty straightforward. What did you like? What did you not like? What surprised you? 
what confused you? And I tell them that the, what we liked, we can start thinking, well, why did we like that? Like we have to move it to the next step, but just these are the initial questions for us to note as we're reading. I like this. I don't like this. I don't understand what's happening here. I want to know more about this. This kind of shocked me, or this makes me want to know more because those are all questions we can build off of pre subsequent readings, dialogue, research, et cetera. Um, and we can all pinpoint things that we like and don't like, et cetera. And then the other set are, what are the techniques you notice being used? And what are the larger themes or connections you can make? So a little bit of what you were saying, like those, those connections, but sometimes if, if they don't, haven't seen anything similar, just saying like, well, I noticed they're saying a lot of stuff about mothers or they're saying some weird stuff about gender. And I'm going to note every time there's a reference to time or it's, and we then build off of those throughout class. But I use those as the, if you don't know how to take marginal notes, if you don't know how to read it all, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Just ask those over and over again as you're reading. Yeah. Right down those spots. I like that scaffolding. And I, I kind of, I do that in a less organized way where on the very first day that we're talking about a text I'll say okay guys just like tell me what you like and don't like we can always start there we just can't finish there mm-hmm. um and so and now usually get that like some idea it takes pressure off and it gets some ideas out there on the table like you said so then we can ask well why did you like that or why did you not like that or not understand that yeah because what you realize if you push your students further that direction is that it is things like the techniques or the themes that they're not liking that it's something like well I don't like the way this character is being written so it's like okay so you don't like the characterization of this person let's talk more about that what is it about the characterization mm-hmm. or they like well I just don't like the how hard it is to read and then we can talk about syntax or vocabulary and why the author is using these choices um and they tend to be more engaged because they think, you know, it's their opinion. You know? yeah. um, but it also is nice because then it sets up that expectation that you just can't point at something and say, I like it, or this is foreshadowing. We start, have to start moving towards the next step of that analysis. But that critical reading needs to lead to that analysis eventually. Like, what are the sort of nailed down techniques or tools that you give your students when it comes to annotating or unpacking specifically maybe like critical texts that you want them to connect to the novels you're reading? Oh, um, that's a good question. Um, I think part of it is making sure I'm assigning critical readings throughout. Um, I know when I was an undergrad, for some of my classes, we read critical works. For some of them, we didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of them, we did not. And then when it was time to research, we didn't know how to read those theoretical texts because we hadn't been doing it in class. Um, And so I try to assign those consistently throughout the class. And 
the students really start to make those connections themselves. Um, we've talked about this before. You and I both do the presentation, group presentations on critical text. Um, my students at the end of their presentations have to lead a class discussion and there's no set length of how long it has to go for, um, but they have to have at least, you know, two to four questions prepared. And none of the students want to talk about the critical text. That's not the fun one. So they're all working already to connect it back to the novel. Like, oh, well, this reminds me of this paragraph in the novel where this happened. And so they, they do that organically. I don't do as much scaffolding as I probably should though, which is something I want to keep in mind in the future. How about you? What can I steal from you? <laughs> I'm blaming my syllabus. Well, so I was going to say that activity that I will use kind of spur of the moment when I feel like students aren't making any connections, like we're hitting a wall with a critical text or we're just getting like, everybody's got the sort of wrong idea, right? You know, that terrible feeling whenever you assign a critical text, you have a purpose for it and it just doesn't translate. And you can mm -hmm. tell in class that like not, it's not getting. Um, and so something I've done before to, you know, what end, I don't know how successfully or not, is ask students um, when we're hitting that wall and they're like, we don't know what to say about this text or what we're saying is, you know, left field, it's not, it's not working, um, is I'll, I'll go to like the visual, right? So can we mind map this? So, um, and it'll be like, I'll ask them to, okay, put the ideas that you think are most important in the largest font in the middle of the page, right? Like write it as big as you can in the middle of the page. And then think about everything else, right? Do you wanna do a linear sort of map or is it a, like a spider web map? And what are we, like, why are we making those decisions, right? Is it because this text is actually about three or four different things? And it applies to the, the novel or short story that we're reading in this way, but not in these others? Or is it a text that when, if we've got a sort of linear version of, of those ideas, is it because everything feels really connected and how can we break it apart, sort of like unfold it to see the different parts? So like, I like going to the visual. I don't know that it always translates super well, um, but it, does get us past like a wall sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. And we are not having productive conversation and we need to move forward in some way, but I don't want to say, here's what you should think about this text. It has gotten students to start thinking about some other things, like some other conversation starters to get us past the wall. Yeah, I'm now thinking too about those, what other sorts of walls we come up against and that, that stop the conversation. And one of the walls I've experienced with having them closely read fiction is that they default to those high school tests they took of, can you identify the symbol used in the short story? What is an example of figurative language that this novel used, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I want them to be able to recognize that, identify that, 
but I also want them to be thinking, well, why does this matter? What's the so what? Okay, so there's a symbol being used. So what? Right. And I think part of the wall there is they don't always know the so what. And so, and they come to that class, the the course itself, with without that confidence um, and not knowing how to take that next step. And it gives me flashbacks to my high school textbook, which I told you about. Our luckily my high school teacher mocked this textbook with us. It is the snootiest, snobbiest, most pretentious (laughs) textbook I've had the pleasure of reading. It's the only textbook I think where I have, again, like ha 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 written throughout it because it's just absurd. Um, But in the section about uh, symbols, it says, The ability to recognize and identify symbols requires perception and tact. The great danger facing readers when they first become aware of symbolic values is a tendency to run wild, to find symbols everywhere, and to read into the details of a story all sorts of fanciful meanings not legitimately supported by it. But we need to remember that the most stories operate almost wholly at the literal level, and that even in the most highly symbolic stories, the majority of the details are purely literal. A story is not an excuse for an exercise in ingenuity. It is, indeed, it is better indeed to miss the symbolic meanings of a story than to pervert its meaning by discovering symbols that are non-existent. Better to miss the boat than to jump wildly for it and drown. <laughs> Which, like, again, yes, I also have kept my textbooks from high school. But I enjoy the tone of voice with which you read that to us so that we could really understand. Yeah, the the condescension dripping in this. Um, But like on one hand, I get what it's saying that it's something you and I talk about that. Yes, there are a lot of right answers in literature, but they're also wrong answers. It has to be supported. But I don't want students hedging themselves in from the start. I want class time, at least initially when we first start a novel, to be a time to jump off the dock wildly. Like, let's all jump into that water because that's part of what reading is, is that speculation of, okay, where do I think this is going? What do I, how do I think this technique is going to pay off? Um, And seeing if the end of the novel pays off that way, if it doesn't live up to those expectations, if they can't, if the novel can't support itself. And so when you're first starting a novel, I think that's a great time to let your students go crazy and tell them there, this is the one time that there are no right answers here because we haven't finished the book. You can't be right because you do not know how this ends. So let's, let's jump in and really start to what, what techniques did you notice? Okay, what do we think they're doing? what does it seem like it's doing based off of what you've read so far? It might turn out that it doesn't work out that way, but let's try to figure it out now. I was just thinking about this, something cool to do, um, where it's like to just be able to go crazy like that. Cause we don't, we're not at the end yet. Um, of the novel would be some sort of like mini assignment, like interviewing the text and you have to either pair them up so that one person's the interviewer and one person's the the book or have them play both roles like what questions would you ask and just from what you know right now how would you answer the questions about the text and it's almost like have them read some like 
or like author interviews, the kind of questions like, where do you see your career headed? Or where, you know, like some fun, silly stuff like that, I think could be a fun activity. Yeah, that would be. And even if, if you have a quiet class, like just something I always do with my classes is when I start a new novel, I do a quick lecture that just gives that context. Who's the author? When was this published? Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But I include passages from the novel, what we read so far, and, and just kind of like, let's dig into this. I'll, I might have some questions to get them prompted to, and that's just to help them get into the practice of closely reading this specific text because every novel has its own rhythms and shorthands. So to help them get into that rhythm, I just like to pull out particularly dense passages. So so I pick the passages that have a fair amount of techniques or include a lot of the themes that the novel will be exploring and allow them to dig into it. So give them like point out fertile ground and then let them dig together as a class. But again, keeping in mind, we just started. You guys don't know. It's fine to be totally off the mark, be totally wrong because I'm not expecting you to know. Those answers might be technically wrong or literally wrong, Yeah, but the stakes are low. So let's go for it. I feel like part of our conversation has to address, uh, like we've mentioned, like when you have a quiet class, but we have to also address one of the biggest walls to getting students to read well to re- do close reading is the actual reading part <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? and and so what are some things we do to encourage them to actually complete the reading I've mentioned this before but quizzes yeah quizzes where you are not trying to trip them up if they're very straightforward but including questions that aren't going to be in the wikipedia summary I also I want them to read things like the title and the author's name and maybe the copyright page to find out what year it was published just so that way they have that in mind when reading the amount of times and I was the student too but when you start talking about the novel and you reference the author's name and there's blank pages it's like guys it's on the cover (laughs) yeah or it's like a female author and they default to he yep the whole time so I use those quizzes um a lot of times quizzes are like 10% of their grades in my class. And I say from the start of the semester, those are free 10, that's a free 10%. Yeah. They should have that no problem. And the lowest quiz score drops. So if they have an off day, it's fine. Right. But it's a gimme. And, and it usually works out that they, they do well in their reading. So that's kind of the most basic way to do it. But how about you? I mean, I don't, I think quizzes are the most surefire way. I have done some like scaffolding assignments, you know? So what I mean by that is there's multiple sort of like a blog post, a final podcast, a group activity in class that they know up front Mm -hmm. that they're going to need to read to be able to complete these things. So I will do things in class where especially at the beginning of the semester where I'm asking them to do very sort of structured activities with the reading so that they know like oh crap I didn't do this reading and it's very obvious that I didn't because I can't do this activity and even if it's group work I'll have like okay you can work together 
but you each have to submit this at the end. And I try to be really specific so that again, like they can't just quickly Google the Wikipedia summary and be able to complete the activity. Like it's requires more than that. Yeah, that makes sense. Something I'm kind of just realizing in this moment is I always have bonus questions on my quizzes, kind of circling back to that. Mm -hmm. And these are bonus questions. I don't expect them to have the answer for. I would always include like, what is the date of, that this was published is one of the bonus questions. But I'd also include questions like hysterectomy, like comes from a Greek word. Mm-hmm. What is it? What is the Greek word for? Like weird things like that. But so that way they would start paying attention to like language, like, oh, yeah. like, okay, hysteria and, and all of that. Or you know, I would use those in texts that talked about a hysterectomy, which for reading maternalist fiction happens a lot. (laughs) Or if there was like a reference to a a historical event that the novel itself didn't dive deeply into, it used as a passing reference, I might ask them like, well, what is that? What is that referring to? Right. To help point out, like, okay, that's a reference. Pay attention to references. Or words in italic. That's the text telling you to pay attention to it and giving, showing them kind of the clues that the tech gives them, but not penalizing them for not recognizing those, you know, flashing arrows just yet. The, the bonus questions were kind of guides of, okay, she always asks us these questions. Um, so I'm going to start paying attention to this, which it's always funny to hear them talking to each other about the bonus questions of like, she always asks us this. What, what, what was it for this one? <laughs> it's like, well, you need it to me. And like, <laughs> My idealistic heart really wants them to read, not for like my approval, but because they just want to, you know, like my approval. And I mean, like via grades or like, or whatever it might be. I'm just, I always hope I'm like, just read because you love to. Yeah. I mean, that's not realistic. I mean, I feel like even I did read because I love to in college. Well, part of me too is like to one of my goals is to help my students learn how to find joy in reading something you hate where it's like there's its own set of joy in that close reading of just like let me tear this apart like, I'm like let the marginal notes be your talk back to the text yeah my my copy of fight club which I don't think I own anymore was just me cursing out Chuck Howling throughout the novel so someone's reading that secondhand. I think I gave it to my friend because he wanted to check out Fight Club. And I was like, you can just have my copy and never let me see it. Yeah, it's, but it's, it was a lot of just, um, yeah. Like I I referred to him by name throughout the novel. Like, well, that was a choice, Chuck. (laughs) I don't know why we're going with this again, but okay, Chuck. I mean, we, we find this on the internet. There's a joy in hating things sometimes. Now, do we want that to be our only joy? No. But I know that my students aren't going to like every novel I assign. I don't like every novel I assign. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it's just fun to kind of see like, okay, you can't just say you don't like something. If you just are reading something and thinking, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. That's boring. That's why you're not having fun because your internal monologue while reading this is repetitive right um so let's pick it up and figure out well what don't I like and why like this is this part's annoying or this is ridiculous and if you can convince someone who loves it why they're wrong (laughs) that's another joy I think another thing we should mention 
or we should mention to our students is asking them to think about like what their purpose for reading is. Mm -hmm. Are they reading like because they're going to be expected to discuss it in class? Are they going to be expected to write about it? Or like we were talking about, are they going to be quizzed on it? Mm -hmm. And then their goals are different. No, I think you're right. Exactly right, though, like different goals and different purposes. And so when you're reading for a quiz, think ideally it's you're noticing the patterns of what you should be reading for in terms of what questions you want to answer and just start internalizing those questions of, okay, so these sorts of things are important. If you're reading for a blog post, you need to start thinking about your own specific interests. Like what draws me in for this text? What's my, what? am I noticing as I read that other people aren't? Like what you were saying, the conversation starters. If you're reading for a paper, then you kind of also have to be reading for what moments you've seen pop up in other texts. Like, oh, this slime gets talked about in every- So like that one, if you're reading it for a paper, you're thinking of the next step, right? The analysis step. And so some of close reading then is pulling out quotes moments that you're you're gonna then do more work with yeah you know what I think I've mentioned this before but my one of my professors in undergrad told would point to passages in novels and call them the tour de force of the novel of like this is like the center of the power Mm -hmm. for this novel and I like to do that for my students too of that you might not always know how you're going to analyze it why you think this is important but those passages that just seem to have a lot of energy that seem to have other parts of the text orbiting it which I know is very abstract so I do like to model this for them but no just highlight those you don't even have to say like what technique they're using what they're referencing but it's okay to just highlight those passages you're like there's some sort of energy happening here I can't nail it down I'm saving it for later like that's part of close reading it's just saving stuff for later yeah and I like that so much because I think it goes back to our point earlier about rereading a text Mm -hmm. so like if you're reading this and you're highlighting and you're making some sort of like incomplete marginal notes, like like a quotation mark or exclamation mark or whatever, then because that process is incomplete, those thoughts are incomplete, you have to come back to it and do that reread so that you can do your next step of analysis. I now want to assign my students in the first week of the semester to read Anne Lamont's shitty first drafts. I have my comp students do it. I don't have my literature students do it. Okay. But I would like to then have a lesson of the reading drafts of on your first read, what do you do? On your second read, what do you do? On your third read, oh. what do you do? And build that out from the start. Because I'm just thinking while we're talking, I don't stress enough to my students that for a literature course, it's about the rereading. For pleasure, it's just reading. You you might reread the books you really, really love, but if you're in a literature tech course, you have to be rereading and rereading. And so I think about like ways to accommodate that, like realistically, because that first read is going to, you're going to get them to read with some sort of assignment, right? Like whether it's a quiz or in-class activity or whatever, but then like, how do we accommodate like those rereads, right? Is it whenever they have, like, I'm thinking like right before a paper, like if you do a midterm paper, give them a class period that's just dedicated to 
re like coming in with your book, with your notes and rereading what you're planning to write about. Yeah, I think giving out class time, I think maybe also giving them assignments like selecting 10 quotes. Yeah, they are interested in. And, and telling them on their first read that that's going to happen. So they're highlighting and kind of looking out for that. Or like picking three passages from different sections of the novel that they're going to reread and do that kind of close reading, moving in towards analysis, either in class or just as an assignment. Yeah. Uh, and they bring that in the next day. Yeah. And I'm thinking about smaller writing assignments with this. Mm-hmm. Right? So instead of chunking it all with a larger paper, what about some close reading writing assignments where you ask that, like, you know, over the course of the semester, you have to do the three passages for two different texts or something like that to, to kind of promote that rereading. And telling them that rereading doesn't mean you're rereading an entire novel, that it might, you might want to refresh yourself on the whole novel, but sometimes it's rereading a chapter. or rereading the same paragraph 10 times because you want to pull out every tiny detail because it's something nuanced, subtle, but dense happening. And I'm not sure how I would start to help them understand, like how to to recognize what fragments they want to reread. I do think it, it largely depends on their perspective, what they're going to want to analyze and choose to analyze. But I think at least having that conversation, maybe showing them your own reading process. I know that there's just like sections in novels that I'll bracket. I'm like, okay, all of this I'm coming back to and maybe showing them that. Later, we talk about for the series research skills. And so I think there's some places that we could connect. So like when it's time to do your proposal, do you also include your close reading of those three passages for that novel that you're mm-hmm. proposing your research topic on? Or for your annotated bibliography, do you do a quote for each entry that you would sort of make connections between the research information and your primary text? And you could also, for students who are writing about the same novel, because obviously you get overlaps, Use that to your advantage where you tell your students, okay, you're going to have to pick three to five paragraphs you're rereading for tomorrow. And they pick their three to five, they identify whatever they, they, there's watercolor moment in these texts are, and then you partner them up and you like, uh, and so, okay, you pulled out these three paragraphs, but your partner picked out totally different ones. So why did you guys pick different Mm -hmm. frags? Is it because of what your thesis a proposed thesis statement is? Is it because of your own interests? Did maybe you were both drawn to those, both of those passages, but you just went with one? Like, and you know, I love collaborative projects. Like you could take that a step further and have them work together on their like critical essays, right? So if we put all these essays together in a collection at the end of the semester, you know, these novels essays would be paired together. So there has to be conversation amongst you to use different like examples so that we get a sweeping view of the text and the, and the class's critical response to it. Yeah. And I think another way you can start getting that sweeping view, again, when you start a novel, break your students up into groups and give each one kind of a different theme of like history, Mm -hmm. politics, gender, whatever, and have them just identify moments in the text that like, talk about that delve into that and you don't they don't have to analyze it nothing it's just them pointing towards it at this point because 
we talk about this in the analysis that analysis has to be more than pointing at things. You can't just say, look, here's a symbol, but close reading, that's all you have to do. Like, okay, here's a moment that's talking about war. Right, right. And I think sometimes I'm guilty of sort of moving too quickly from close reading to analysis and sort of conflating those two. Um, I mean, I think that you're still doing some unpacking. You're asking those why questions, Mm -hmm. but it is, but there is a difference in terms of like analysis is much like you, like you said, like the close reading's unfinished. The analysis is that polish. It's your, your updraft. Mm-hmm. If we can go back to Amamon, yeah. close reading's your downdraft, right? Just getting your ideas down. Um, and then the analysis is your updraft. Yeah. And so if you break your students up into those groups where they're just responsible for pointing to one theme or one technique, you can then put it all together as a class and see kind of all the different ways you can close read one text and set them up for the rest of the semester of, well, when this, when this group was reading specifically for, you know, gender, these were the sorts of passages they were noting, um, or these were the sort of the techniques that kept coming up and sort of giving them the, the signpost essentially, like they, like using their own work to unveil the patterns and then applying those patterns in the novels you read for the rest of the semester of, oh, like every time this image came up, it was always connected to this mm-hmm. idea of class. Yeah. And so I'm going to now know that whenever I see the word silk used, it's a class marker um, or something like that. I, I haven't done that, but I kind of want to now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't that, that's like the symptom of doing this. Podcasts yeah. is that I'm always like, I haven't done that I was just spitballing it but now I really want to yeah because but. I think that's the big thing maybe we've been circling in this episode is that close reading is about uncovering and identifying the signposts of a text mm-hmm. yeah and yeah. and so getting students to think of it that way and and helping them identify that there's these patterns and the patterns change depending on you know, the geography of the text, the time it's written, its genre, et cetera. And that's why we have classes structured the way we do with time periods and, and genres and all that. But once you figure out your, your text patterns, like what patterns they fit in, close reading is 10 times easier. Yeah. yeah. You can control S that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, Tell me, like, speaking of things you want to try, but you haven't yet, what's your dream course? So this is not my dream course, but it's a course I was thinking about. This okay. Week. I guess that'll do. I mean, yeah. you're not following the assignment. so no. Well, you're going to know why I'm not following it in a second. Okay. You and I were talking about Wishbone, and I was reminding you of the trauma of our generation experience of the Time Machine episode. Mm -hmm. Just horrifying. Um, H.G. Wells, not meant for the preschool demographic, (laughs) but it it was making me think about time travel fiction Mm -hmm. and, um, and how that might be interesting in terms of, like, sort of a classic visions of the future. Okay. Because time travel is all about controlling the future. What sort of future do we want to create? Um, and you can start with the time machine 
you might go with future of an alternative timeline. Maybe, yeah. Um, and again, I'm not sure. This is my dream, of course. But I'm just thinking a lot about time travel today and how it's how haunting it is and terrifying. And I never want to time travel. I will take this to the press. Time travel, not a good idea. Not now, not ever. <laughs> so, but what about you? What future course which you will not time travel to, but wait for? Like you. Well, said? first off, I wanted to talk about the a, a little bit of a tangent but um yesterday I was having a conversation and it dawned on me that like you know humanity is not that old and we're at the beginning um mm-hmm. so you know not to get too conspiracy theory but they're probably time travelers anyway not not, not in my household <laughs> I would do like my dream course would be right now like a queer southern lit class so Oh, yeah. With like the classics, you know, like the color purple and cat on a hot tin roof, but also um, some Faulkner and, and some like critical theory on him and like a queer South and like Dorothy Allison's memoir, two or three things I know for sure. And so I think it would be about like queer people in the South but then also move, like that would be the beginning of the class, but then move into the South as like queer spaces. Mm-hmm. And so I might even um, throw in some Southern Reach trilogy, you know, mm-hmm. those weird traps in the South, I want to say, where time has stood still, or maybe I'm doing a time travel class too, because I think you could use long division, which I always bring up, but that you could use that one too. But there's also like, I guess, is the inverse of time travel, frozen time yeah like a rose for emily and and so kind of that conversation of the south is not a monolith there are queer people that represent the south and also the south is a weird place uh time is weird spaces are weird like so am i just doing another like weird class you know yeah no no i would i would take that class I think there's a lot to dig into and also because you're you're starting kind of not in present or 20th century necessarily um or you know however we want to define time um that to remind students that queer identities themselves have changed over time like thinking about patterns my students would point to certain things in text as being queer I was like that didn't mean that then like that's not part of the pattern uh, because Rose for Emily my students thought that um, Homer saying that he's a man's man was him announcing to the 1930s southern town that he was queer oh no yeah um I there's also it's like a sparklet or like you know off-brand cliff's notes that that says that and I think they also get that from there Mm -hmm. I'm like no this is definitely a misreading yeah and I'm like that's wrong pattern that this signifies something else. And let's talk about that, how like queer signposts change over time. Um, What it means to be queer changes over time, et cetera. And I think that would be really cool. Like what you're talking about, like break down the monolith of queer identities, but also Southern identities. Yeah. Fracture it, fracture it all. Fracture it, but don't travel through time. No, time is meant to be linear experienced as a linear the closest I will get to time traveling is um 
time zones or daylight savings time. And even then, I'm not fans of daylight savings. I was going to say the closest you'll get to time travel is just re-listening to these episodes. I don't know why I thought you were going to say going to sleep. <laughs> no. Nope. You go to sleep, it's one time, you wake up, oh my gosh, eight hours <laughs> in the future. Okay. But until next time, until we time travel to the next episode. <laughs>